Well, good morning. I'm so glad to see you. You know, the church services, we've started seeing people coming in. We're glad to welcome those worshiping with us online and glad to worship you, welcome you as well to worship. We see people coming in after COVID. They're starting to trickle in now. We changed the service times because we didn't have a need for as many services and people have been showing up for church. And I said, you know, we've got a plan and that is to hide from you. And if you find us, we let you worship with us. And some of you have found us. You've tracked us down and you found us. God bless you for it. It's been challenging, hasn't it? And it's been difficult. And here's the other thing I've learned, that people like to stay home and watch church in their pajamas. Because while you've been looking at me, I've been looking at you too, see? That's right. And I know you're comfy there, but I am glad when you can come. I know that sometimes you're out of town and you want to watch it online. And we're working on that for our traditional service so that we can do it Facebook Live like we do this in the water. So just FYI for you to know and glad that you're here today. Now we're in a, a series and it's a 10-week series and this is the ninth sermon. And if this is your first time to be in this series, you're going... He's preached that weeks and I hadn't been here. Boy, am I going to be behind. Never fear. Don't worry. It'll be all right. I'm going to give you a quick summary. But also, you can go online and pick up the messages that we've had before. And we're going to wrap it up next Sunday. Next Sunday will be the last sermon in this series. And then we'll start a new series after that. So I'm glad that you're here. Glad that you're a part of worship today. Now, in this series, we've been talking about how Jesus was introduced to the world and how he became the savior of the world. We said throughout the series that Jesus came to offer something new. You see, there was a covenant between the Israelites and God. And God says, I'll honor this covenant with you. We'll have a relationship. You're the chosen people and the Jewish people are the chosen people even today. And he said, we're going to establish this covenant with Abraham and Abraham through your lineage, we're going to develop a whole nation. It's going to come from you, from your family. And so that's going to be the greater family. And, and you know, the, the Jewish people were told to kind of separate from other people. They were chosen. They were set apart. And they weren't supposed to dress like other people, eat like other people, look like other people. They wore their hair differently. They did different things because they were trying to honor God because that's what they were told to do. But Jesus comes along and he says, I've got a new covenant. And in this new covenant, we're going to love each other. We're going to care for each other. It's going to be different, and I'm going to set up a kingdom. And boy, that's what they wanted to hear because they were occupied by Rome. Back in the good old days, when King David and King Solomon were in charge, they were independent. They were autonomous. They were their own country. But now Rome has come in and conquered and taken over, and they're occupied by Rome. And so that's what they want. Okay, you come in. You be in charge. You be the Messiah. You stand up, and you just wipe everybody else out, and it'll be just us and God again like it's supposed to be. And Jesus said, well, it's going to be a little different. This kingdom is not going to be like the kingdoms that you know. This kingdom is going to be a kingdom where it's a kingdom of your heart. It's going to be a relational kingdom. And you're going to know God through me, and you're going to have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you're going to walk and talk with me and have a relationship, and it's going to be real. And Jesus started making claims. He started saying things like this, You have heard it said, but I say. What he was saying was, in Scripture, You've heard this said and taught, and that's what you've learned all your life. But I say, and he would give them something new, that he came, he came to establish a new covenant. And in this new covenant, it was going to be different from anything they had seen. He said, I'm greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. The temple was their way of life. 
The temple was where they worshiped. The temple was where God lived. And he's saying he's greater than the temple. He's greater than their worship. He's greater than the, what they put their whole faith in and trust in for all this time. The religious system in that day valued things that were physically clean. You see, as they separated themselves from other people, the last thing they wanted to do is be around anybody who was sick. Can I get an amen? I mean, we live in COVID. Everybody's walking around with their mask on, too, right? Because we're afraid, right? We're trying to stay healthy. We're trying to take our shots. We're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, who can blame us? I mean, that's the way it is. But Jesus looked at it so differently. And Jesus would go and he would touch people considered unclean, even lepers. And he would heal them. And it was amazing. And it was so different than anything they had ever seen before. They didn't know what to do with it. And Jesus came along and he said the value system of the world where it's a top-down power struggle kind of a deal where the power tells the, the people what to do. He said, my kingdom's different than that. In my kingdom, instead of me ruling and instead of you going out and giving your life for me, I'm going to get up under your burden and I'm going to help you carry it. In fact, I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to carry it for you and I'm going to give my life for you. And they'd never heard anything like that before because in their world, power, power was all they understood. And if you did anything out of love or help somebody or put somebody else first, that was seen as weakness to them. Now, what we left off last time, they're about to celebrate Passover. And Jesus has strategically come at this time for a strategic message that he's going to offer. And the religious leaders hear that he's coming to Jerusalem. And so they look for him. They put spies out everywhere because they want to capture Jesus. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him because he's changing their way of life. When the people at the switch, the people who have control, the people at power are threatened by somebody who's gonna take that power away, then they wanna fight that power. And that's how they saw Jesus. And so it says in John 11, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Now, it turns out it was easy to find Jesus, but it was difficult to arrest him. Why? Because everywhere he went, he drew a crowd. You talk about a celebrity. This guy was popular. They just had a big parade to bring him into the city. Everybody was waiting on the Messiah to come. And so they couldn't get him away. The people lined the city as he made his way into Jerusalem and the excitement built. And they assumed that Jesus was going to establish that new kingdom, but it wasn't the way that they thought. And then something unusual happened. One of Jesus' closest followers broke rank. You see, Judas began to realize, I don't think Jesus is going to do what I want him to do. Have you ever had that conversation with God? Lord, you are not doing what I want you to do. You're not doing it right now. You're not doing it the way I want you to, and you better shape up or you're going to go on probation. We're going to put you in time out. Things are not going to keep going like they're going. We got to get this straightened out. If you've ever had that conversation with God who won, I can see you. Don't be lying. Yeah, God's in charge. He's on the throne, and so that's not the way it works. But we do that. We do that, and Judas took it to the extreme. And after the supper that night, he broke away, and he went to the chief priest, and he said, if you want Jesus, I can get him for you, and I can get him when there's not a crowd around him. And they were elated. They agreed. And the Bible says that he watched 
for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. I think there's a powerful lesson there for all of us, and that is this. We have to surrender to God's will. We have to be in allegiance with him. He is in charge. Have you seen God's job description? I have, and I don't want it. I want him to be in charge. And listen, I don't want what I deserve. Please give me grace and mercy anytime. I'll take it over what I deserve, right? And so that's what Judas was doing. But, but Jesus didn't think like they thought. They thought, we're going to fight so that we don't lose our way of life. And Jesus said, I came to give my life away. <laughs> you can't threaten me. I'm going to die for you. What are you thinking? And before he sacrificed himself for the world, he had two loose ends that he had to take care of. And as they gathered for Passover, the first thing he did was he established this new relationship between God and all mankind. And in the upper room, as they prepared for Passover, Jesus changed the whole meaning of Passover. A few weeks ago, we said that Jesus came to them, and after supper, he stood up, and, and he washed their feet. He got a, a basin. He took off his robe. He got a basin of water. He got down and washed their feet. And they, they, at first, they didn't want their feet washed. And I can imagine how that must have been. You see, back then, you walked with sandals. It was dusty and dirty. That was just a common thing to wash your feet when you went in somewhere. Usually the host would do that for you. And Jesus said, I want to wash your feet. Peter said, no, I need to be washing your feet. He said, if I don't wash you, then you can't be a part of me. He said, well, then wash me, Lord, wash me. Wash me all over then. I, he said, I'm going to wash your feet. Now, here's what happened. It takes a long time to wash the feet of 12 men. While he was washing their feet, all you could hear, I don't think anybody spoke, all you could hear was just water dripping into the basin and him wiping their feet. And they were humiliated by that. They were humbled by that because they'd seen what those hands could do. They had seen what Jesus had done. And now those hands are washing their feet. And Jesus said, we've got a new meaning to Passover. I know we've done it this way forever, but things are changing. When you gather for Passover, you're not going to just remember Egypt now. You're not going to just remember Moses. You know, God led the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, before we go, here's what I'm going to do because they're going to try to kill you. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I want you to get a lamb and I want you to get the blood and put it over the doorpost. And I want you to put it on your house so that the death angel may pass over your house so that you can be delivered. And that's what happened. And so that's what they had celebrated. They were celebrating, we've been, we've been delivered from captivity. We've been delivered. And, and now I want you to remember, not Egypt and not Moses, but from now on when we do this, I want you to remember me, Jesus was saying. And the bread that always meant one thing, now from now on, it's going to represent my body and the wine that represented the blood of the lamb. Now it's going to be my blood. I'm going to establish a new covenant with my blood for you. And this signaled the end of God's conditional covenant and the new covenant that Jesus was bringing for everyone. And this new arrangement between God and man would require new terms and conditions that would replace the old covenant. And Jesus' closest followers should have seen this coming because all along the way, he kept referring to the fact that I've come to do something new. Months before Passover, Jesus was teaching. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law were constantly following him. They were constantly trying to find a way to trap him so that they might be able to arrest him. They might be able to get him away from the crowd and they wanted to kill him. And the Bible says in Matthew 22, 
Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. But they didn't go themselves because they would be recognized. So they sent their flunkies. They sent their disciples, their underlings, and they gave them some assignment. They said, okay, here's what we want you to do. I want you to go find Jesus. When you find him, we want you to ask him a specific question. And if you ask this question just right, and if you do this just the way we tell you to, you might be able to trick and trap the rabbi from Nazareth. And so that's what they did. They said, teacher, and this is what they asked him. They said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach uh, the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. See, what they're doing is they're buttering him all up, right? They want to get him buttered up because then they can get him vulnerable and then they can ask him an IRS question, okay? That's what they're getting ready to do. You know, who do we pay taxes to? He, he takes a coin and does a coin trick, you know, render unto Caesar what's Caesar and to God what's God. And so they messed up. And they didn't get what they wanted. And so they go scurrying back to their handlers. And the Pharisees are in the back and they say, hey, we tried. It didn't work. We're embarrassed, okay? So now the Sadducees are up next. It's their turn. And they've got a, they got a question. And they say, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? That's a little confusing. That's really not a cultural thing today, is it? Well, let me explain it to you. In, in ancient times, it was actually a good thing because women were so vulnerable back then. If their husband died, they didn't have children, then the husband's brother would marry them, even though he was already married. He would marry them and have children through them so that their husband's name would continue on and they would be provided for. And that's what they did. So it was a way for them to take care of them. So the husband's brother would have to marry her, then produce children so the brother's name would go on. So they tell Jesus the law, and then they turn to this riddle of sorts. Now, they're just making this up, okay? They're, it's kind of like going to court, and they're just laying the groundwork with all this stuff, and it's a what if. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if this happens, then what are we going to do, okay? You with me so far? So they say there were seven brothers. One brother got married, but he and his wife didn't have kids. And then he had no children. And then his wife married his brother. You follow me so far? They get married. The husband dies. The wife marries the brother. Okay. Then they say, and the second brother that she married died. So she married the third brother. Still didn't have any kids. And he died. Still no children. So she married the fourth brother. Then she married the fifth brother. Then she married the sixth brother. They're all dying out. She, you know, what kind of lady is this? That's wiping out these men, right? And then she finally marries the seventh brother, Then and then he dies, and then she dies. And then, and then they said, now here, this is the what if. Now here is the question. This is what we want to ask. And here's the question. When she gets to heaven, who's she married to? Okay, Solomon, what do you got? And so the crowd was like, wow, that's a pretty good question. And Jesus is ready to answer the point of this question was to show how ridiculous the afterlife was to them because the Sadducees did not believe, believe in the afterlife. That's why they were sad, you see? <laughs> hey, hey, that's pretty creative. Come on. 
So they come up with this trick question and Jesus smiles and says, have you not read the scriptures? And they said, have we not read the scriptures? That's pretty much all we do is read the scriptures. Then he skips over Moses to Abraham and he makes an incredible point based on the tense of the verb and he sends them scurrying back to their handlers as well and they're humiliated and the crowd breaks out in applause. Why? Because they love it when Jesus humiliates these hypocritical people who are always asking other people to do what they're not willing to do. And here's what the Bible says in Matthew 22. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the, then the Pharisees got together, okay? It's our turn. We went in first. We blew it. Sadducees went in. Now it's our turn. We got another question. This is really good. We think this will trip him up, okay? So in Matthew 22, it says... One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, from all the commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai that he brought down, you know, everybody in the audience knows the answer to this question. It's pretty much the Sunday school class answer to the question. It's not going to be hard for them to answer it. But Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to point the people forward, not backward. You see, the Pharisees had a question behind their question. It's, it's, they're like lawyers. They're, it's like you're at court. And what they're saying is, here's what we want to do. Get him to answer these questions based on what he says here. Then we're going to ask him this. And what's going to happen is this last zinger is really going to knock him back against the ropes, or so they thought. So in Matthew 22, it says this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the lawyer is about to ask his second question. And Jesus says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is significant. For, we've heard this so much. It doesn't, it's not significant to us right now. But here's what I want you to understand. This is the first time in recorded history that we have any evidence that, that we know of where somebody took a verse from Deuteronomy and a verse from Leviticus and he put them together in this way. The two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this signaled a very important shift in the way things had gone. Because up until this point, the, the Jewish person's understanding of his relationship with God was completely vertical. It was God and me. And, and you know, the rest of you stay out of the way, okay? It's just God and me. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, it's not limited to that. Now it's got to be horizontal as well. To be right with God, you got to be right with each other. Well, that's harder. I don't know that I want to do that. Have you seen the people I have to deal with? But that's what he says. Jesus comes with a new idea, a new covenant. In, in the religious world in which Jesus lived, a person could love God and treat people poorly. And when they were confronted, they could say, God and I are good. I've confessed my sin. I'm serving him. I'm in the ministry. Everything's great. And they say, yeah, but look how you treat your wife. Look at how you talk to your son. Listen to the way that you deal with your employees. I know, but God and I are good. And that was religion in the first century. It was just limited to God. If you thought things were right with you and God, then everything else didn't matter. But Jesus says this is totally different. And then he says in verse 40, all the law and the prophets 
hang on these two commandments. Now, what's he talking about? When he says the law and the prophets, he couldn't say to them, well, if you look in your Bibles, because they didn't have Bibles, okay? And he couldn't say, well, it's in the Old Testament. Well, they didn't have an Old Testament because they didn't have a New Testament, okay? What they did, when they referred to their scripture, they were talking about the law and the prophets. That was really all the way from Genesis to Malachi, what we know as the Old Testament. That's the way they would refer to scripture. So Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The whole sacred body of literature, the entire Bible, hangs on these two commands. Love is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated when you love other people. And I want you to think about this for a minute. In the world in which we live today where people can't get along, in the world in which we live today where everybody gets offended if you say, boo, about anything. Hello, how are you? What do you mean by that? I mean, that's the world we live in right now, right? And so the world is so objective. They just object to everything. And what happens when Christian people show love to people who are unlovely? The world goes, well, I've never seen that before. I'm going to sit up and pay it. What, what's, what's going on with them? That's different. I, I've never seen that. Love is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for other people. That's what Jesus was teaching. He had two big ideas, but he wasn't through. The problem was, for the first century Jewish person, a neighbor was another Jewish person. So if you're supposed to love your neighbor, well, that's just limited to the Jews. I don't have to love the Gentiles. He was saying, I don't have to love y'all. I can just love the Jewish people. And that's what they lived in. And Jesus came along and gave them a whole new definition for the neighbor. Every generation, every nation from then on, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's what it was all about. That's why he was telling them about the parable of the Good Samaritan so he could say, hey, I don't want you just to love the Jewish people. I want you to love everybody. I want you to love the people you don't want to love. I want you to love the people who don't love you and the people who don't even like you. Now, love for God is authenticated by the way that we treat other people. And then he chose the Passover as his moment of a big reveal. They had just finished getting their feet washed, and Moses was the one who established the covenant between God and Israel. Now, Jesus establishes this brand new covenant between us and God. And the covenant, he's the, in this, he is the covenant maker, and he is the law giver. Now, that was different from Moses. God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai. Moses brought it down to the people. Jesus said this, a new command I give you that you love one another. A new command I give you. That was totally different. But they said, wait a minute, you can't give us a command. We know what happens. We know the story. Moses got the command from God. He brought it down to us. Moses brought it back. Moses delivered the law, but Moses didn't originate the law. It's like you're playing the role of God. <clears throat> it's like you're getting between us and God. And Jesus said, that's exactly where I want to be. That's, that's right. You got it. I want to be between you and God because I'm the one who can introduce you to God. 
I'm the one who can help you to know God. I'm the one who plant my spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit, so that you can live with me and walk with me. They didn't understand anything until after Jesus was resurrected. The things that he was talking about were so foreign, so difficult for them to fathom. And so he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus didn't come to add some more rules to all the rules they had, and they had a ton of them. He came to simplify things. He, he, com he combined it all down to two things, and then he combined it down to one thing. And if the church gets this right, everything changes. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. That makes all the difference. And Jesus turned to Matthew. You can imagine, he probably talked to all the disciples. He turned to him, he said, Matthew, do you remember when we met? Yes, sir, I do. He said, what were you doing? Do you remember? He said, yes, sir. He said, tell him so the crowd will know. He said, well, I was a tax collector. You remember when we met, what I asked you? You said for me to follow you. That's right. And then what happened? And then you said, let's all go to my house and we'll eat together. And Peter probably spoke up and said, yes, I remember that. I remember that because you're not supposed to hang out with tax collectors. Everybody hates tax collectors. They cheat us all. It's going to ruin our reputation if we hang out with him. And Jesus said, no, he gets to be one of us. In fact, everybody can be one of us. We're going to open this up to everyone. And in John, it says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The point being that the love they had for God and Jesus, they must demonstrate in their love for each other. And the new covenant question is, what does God require of me? And this is where the rubber hits the road. This is God talking to you and me directly today, and he's asking us this question. It's a New Testament imperative. It's an application. You see, Paul, over and over again, he didn't give them new rules. He just gave them new ways to apply this one central thought that Jesus was teaching them. And this is what he said in Ephesians. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay? Now, what's he saying? Why should I forgive other people? Because I'm forgiven. Well, why should I be patient and kind? Because love is patient and kind. And those are our marching orders. Now, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be like him. And then what God did through Christ for me, I'm supposed to do for other people. Paul does not give the Christians a bunch of things to do. He just gives them applications of how to apply what they were taught. And the culture in that day worshiped victory and strength. You came in with power. That's the only thing they understood. And you still see that in the world today. There are people who will not listen unless you have power to show them. But Jesus came with love, and love's more powerful than any power that we could face in the world today. And he changed everything about that. And, and what happened is it became appealing. People started watching it, and it didn't make sense at first, but then it became contagious, and it circled the globe. And we're here today because those first-century Christians did it so well, and they showed us what it's all about to show love to other people. They survived and thrived, and they were fueled by a single idea. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. 
And then Jesus said, let's go to the garden. And they go to Gethsemane. He says, you guys stay here and pray. I'm going over here. And he comes back and they're asleep and he wakes them up. Pray. And then he goes back and prays some more. Then he comes back and they're asleep. Wake up and pray. And then he goes back and finally Judas comes in with his henchmen. And they arrest Jesus. And they take him away. And they take him to Caiaphas' home. And they put him on trial. And they get these false witnesses. They people that they just bribed or paid or just talked into. Will you come and say what Jesus did? And they just trump up all these charges that are not true. And there were no, there were no people there to defend him. None of his followers went in and said, well, let me tell you what really happened because I was there. Because they were all afraid and they ran away. And then they got word that they had taken him to Pilate. And that meant there's something that they want to do that they can't do. They're not just going to beat him up. They're going to kill him. Because Rome has to authorize that. And now they're even more upset because they know that Jesus is going to die and that they are probably next. So what are they going to do? Now, I want to just wrap this up with one quick story and we're going to go. Several years ago, I was serving a church, and, and the church had lives kind of in a neighborhood. It was on a main road, but the back of it was in a neighborhood. And there were a lot of homes around, and this guy lived across the street, and he and his wife were there. And they were older people, and, and she had Alzheimer's. And so he took care of her all the time, and he had, had to quit his job, and, and he had had to be there with her all the time. But he loved her. She was the love of his life. She was a beautiful woman. And their daughter lived in California. They didn't see each other much. And, and so... He, he was upset because some of the, where the playground was for this church, there used to be houses, and it was a historic district. And they, they tore down or moved the houses to build the playground. And he was in the historic district, and he didn't like it. And there was this light that they put up to shine on the playground. And sometimes it would shine, and, and it would shine over toward their house. And so I came in one Monday morning, and I had two voicemails, and it was, they were from this guy. He went to a different church. And I hadn't been cussed out in a long time. And I got cussed out twice on Monday morning. On Monday morning, really, Monday morning? Couldn't wait till Tuesday? Never. And so he cussed me out twice. And he said that I'm over here in the middle of the night, and he'd ha it was the final straw. And his poor wife with Alzheimer's saw the light, and she thought it was time to get up. And he couldn't get her back to sleep. And he was worn out. Now, he had been in a feud with the church for years, and they just didn't really get along with each other. So I went out there, and I inspected the light, and here's what I discovered. The light they put out there had a timer on it because they had been sensitive to his needs. They put this timer on it so that it would, it would turn off, right? So even if you left it on and you went somewhere, 30 minutes, it would be gone. It would go off. But the rocket scientist who put the cover over the timer put one in that was too small. So it caught the timer, and instead of it cutting off, it kept it on. <laughs> it just locked because it couldn't turn anymore, and it couldn't turn off, so it just stayed on all the time. So I investigated that. I learned about it, and I said, okay, well, we got to get that fixed. What did they do without me before I got there? I'm just one man. I'm like Regis Philbin. Do I have to do everything for these people? So we get somebody to fix it, but meanwhile, I go to his house. I ring his doorbell, and he comes out. And he sits down, and, and he, he starts in. And I just apologized and apologized and apologized. I am so sorry that happened. Let me tell you what I've learned. I'm just so sorry. 
you know, the people were actually trying to find a way to turn the light off and they messed up on the actual implementation of it. But we're going to get that fixed. But, but you can turn it off yourself. It, it's not that they're trying to be ugly. If it's ever on, it's bothering you, there's nobody there, just walk over there. It's on that pole. I'll take you over there and show you. You go through the gate. You can turn it off yourself. It'll be turned off. And if you can't do it, here's my cell phone. Call me. You know where I live. I'll, I'll come day or night, anytime, help you out. He just kept on, kept on. Finally, I said, you know, I don't know what it's like to have a wife who has Alzheimer's. But I can't imagine it's easy. I just want you to know that we care about you. We're praying for both of you. And we don't want to do anything that makes your life more difficult. By the time I left, he had warmed up to me then. And then I started seeing him, and, and I would drive by his house on the way home, and I'd stop, and he'd walk out from his porch, and we'd sit there and talk, and I'd try to tell him a joke or something funny or just something to make him happy, just anything. I'd just listen to him and let him talk to me. Not too long after that, I got this thing that came across my desk, and it was a story. It came from God. And it was a story about a man who was married to a woman who had Alzheimer's, and he took care of her. And I immediately just picked it up right then from my office. It was across the street. I walked across the street. I rang his doorbell, and he came to the door. And I handed him that thing, and I said, listen, this just fell into my hands. I think it's from God. And I wanted to give it to you. I didn't do it to remind you of all the pain. I did it so that you might see that there are other people who are struggling with the same struggle you have. But also I want you to know that there are other people who are not in that struggle, but who will partner with you and pray for you and be there for you. And I just want to encourage you today. And I left and he thanked me. I went back to the office. I didn't have a clue this was happening. Our church hostess went to church with that man at a different church. She called him not long after I handed him that letter, that story. I had, she had no idea I was going. I had no idea she was going to contact him. He answered the phone, and he was so distraught, so upset. He was crying so hard he couldn't talk to her. And he said, I'll have to call you back. And so later, when he got, gathered his composure, he called her back, and he said, let me tell you what happened. And he told her the story. And then he told her how much that meant to him. That he didn't even go to our church, but that I took the time, I just found the article, and I took it over there and I gave it to him, and, and it blessed him. So when she came back and told me that's how I found out about it. And I told you that story so that you would know how great I am. <laughs> no. I told you that story because for every one of those, I got multitudes where I got it wrong, where I blew it. I didn't respond the right way. I said the wrong thing. I didn't say enough. But that one time, I got it right. And if I can, if I can, you can. And all God's children said,